0: Welcome to the Unapologetically Fueled Podcast, where we talk nutrition, identity, performance, and the psychology behind it all. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode. I'm super excited about today's topic. We're talking all about how exercise and running can actually affect your mental health. And this is a topic I'm super passionate about because I love psychology and the mind. We're kind of gonna go into like neuroscience. And I also love exercise and being an athlete. So we're gonna talk about all the positive effects it has on mental health. And then also um, just like, of the negative effects that it could have on mental health. So kind of looking at it from both angles, the positives and negatives, and looking at how to cultivate a healthy relationship with exercise. So super cool research I'm going to share with you guys, and I'm super excited to address this topic, especially since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and I am super passionate about that so super excited but first we're going to jump into a listener question quickly and today's listener question is what advice would you give someone who signed up for their first marathon now this is a really good question because I do not run marathons but I run half marathons a marathon is on my bucket list so I will try and give you the best advice I can from a half marathon point of view, and then maybe re-listen to this advice when I sign up for my first marathon, but I guess from a half marathon point of view, I would say my biggest advice is to just, like, trust the process because it is gonna feel really hard and daunting at first, even just training for, like, a half marathon. I signed up when I could only run, like, one mile straight continuous, um, and so it was, like, a hard process to go through, but, Also, like, just trust it. And also, rest. Like, you need rest days. That is something to also just keep in mind just because you don't want to overtrain. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, yeah, that's what I would say is rest, trust the process, um... And then also give yourself grace. Like if you cannot hit certain workouts or certain paces or whatever your goal is, like don't get upset with yourself. Just give yourself grace and remember that like even getting out to run and exercise is such a huge accomplishment. So even making it to the starting line of a marathon, that's amazing. Like less than 1% of the world runs marathons. So you go, you're amazing. Don't think about pace. Don't compare yourself to other people and just run and have fun and you can do this. I believe in you, so you'll have to keep me updated on how your marathon goes, so super excited for you. Anyway, getting into the topic today, let's first go through some mental health stats quickly. So... According to the National Institute of Mental Health, about one in five Americans will struggle with mental illness sometimes with their sometime in their life. And this includes all sort of mental illnesses, so like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, eating disorders, and in particular, eating disorders have, the rates of eating disorders have doubled since the onset of the pandemic, according to Halstein, in 2021. And this is a trend that's been seen with every single mental illness, is that it is Significantly increased since COVID started because you know, like you're separated from your loved ones and you have a lost sense of control and stuff. So, there's all sorts of reasons why this is happening, but um, those are just like a couple of the reasons. And mental health is just as important as physical health. Like, anybody who has a broken arm, like, you're gonna go to the doctor and you're gonna be seen and you're gonna be treated. Mental health is just as important as that. Mental health, a brain chemistry imbalance or whatever you're face, faced with, like that is just important as your broken arm or whatever physical physical health matter is concerning because also your mental health can affect your physical health. So that is just a little spiel on mental health because it is super important and there are lots of different treatments for mental health like using SSRIs for depression or Um, doing therapy, which are all super great. Um, I really like cognitive behavioral therapy. That's really good. Or dialectical behavior therapy. Just some of those behavior therapies and antidepressants can be super good. But also research has shown that exercise has really cool, great benefits on mental health. Like, we know that exercise is super good for physical health. You know, like, It improves your cardiovascular fitness, which decreases your risk of a heart attack and a stroke. And it makes you an overall healthier person physically um, to an extent, again, and I'll talk about that later. But, like, also exercise has so many positive effects on your mental health. So when you exercise... Well, consistent exercisers, many studies have shown that it improves your overall mood. So, like, it increases your positive emotions, decreases your negative emotions. It actually helps you sleep better at night, especially if you exercise in the morning. If you exercise at night, though, that can actually inhibit your sleep. But exercising, like, before 5 p.m. is probably ideal. It relieves stress, and I'll get into the neuroscience about that more a little bit. It increases your energy. It reduces overall fatigue and it increases your mental alertness. So those are just some of the general effects that exercise has on your mental health. And these are all things that we want to cultivate, obviously, like better mood, better sleep. And sleep is so important for you. Like I do sleep research and it's probably one of the most important things you can do, you know, besides eating and drinking water. Is sleeping so anyway (laughs) Um, and it also really helps people with all sorts of different psychological disorders so not only like depression and anxiety but it also helps manage symptoms of like ADHD and OCD and post-traumatic stress disorder there are all sorts of studies that point to this benefit so I want to look at some specific studies that kind of examine this relationship here so one or it was Greer and colleagues in 2016 looked at how jogging and walking could affect one's risk of depression. So they already took people who had diagnosed major depressive disorder, which is a DSM-5 disorder, and they found that 15 minutes of jogging or one hour of walking per day actually decreased one's risk of depression, and this effect was as strong as antidepressants, which is amazing to look at like they had all these different conditions like control conditions and stuff and they found that that 15 minutes of jogging or one hour walking has a similar effect to antidepressants like that's awesome like there are so many people that live with major depressive disorder in this world and it's cool to see how these how exercise can actually have similar effects to that so obviously I'm not saying this is a replacement for antidepressants but it is definitely something that can, um, can improve and really just facilitate better mental health in addition to antidepressants. Also, looking at those with anxiety... Exercise has so many positive benefits on people who live with anxiety, specifically generalized anxiety disorder, which is basically the DSM-5 diagnostic disorder for having persistent anxiety. Now, there are so many different studies that have shown the positive effects on anxiety um, for many different exercisers, and this is exercisers of all types, like aerobic runners, cyclists, swimmers, and then anaerobic, like weightlifters, but... One study that I really thought was super cool was that after 20 minutes of cycling on a bike, it actually decreased symptoms of anxiety by 50% and it improved overall mood and also reduced the stress hormone after 20, just after 20 minutes. And it also, so I'm going to give a little lesson on this. So heart rate variability. Heart rate variability, it's something that you're, if you have a Garmin, you probably know what this is because that's how garmin measures your stress levels and so your heart rate is obviously it pumps a certain amount of beats per minute but when your heart rate is relaxed what it does it it shifts in its beats per minute between your respiration so when you breathe in your heart rate is supposed to increase a little bit and when you breathe out your heart rate is supposed to decrease a little bit if you're less stressed your heart rate will adequately make those changes. So it will increase when you inhale and decrease when you exhale. However, if you're more stressed, that variation is actually going to be lower. So your heart rate really won't change between your inhales and exhales. So if you think like when you're running, your heart rate variability actually, it, is, it indicates stress because it's fairly consistent as you know, you're running along or doing whatever sort of endurance activity you're doing. However, it triggers different neurochemicals, and it's more of a good stress than a bad stress. But anyway, this study that showed that 20 minutes of cycling can reduce symptoms of anxiety and stress actually looked at heart rate variability. And heart rate variability was higher after that 20-minute cycling period. So that showed that even their parasympathetic tone, which is what that heart rate variability measures, parasympathetic nervous system is what kind of triggers relaxation. It was actually higher and so more relaxed. So it's cool to see that like mood and those physiological measures looking at how cycling can affect symptoms of anxiety. It's also really known that exercise can enhance your overall cognitive functioning in so many different ways, and I'll touch on that more in like when I talk more physiology and stuff and um, neuroscience a little bit later. But what's really cool is that there have been many different studies that have looked at the effect of exercise on Alzheimer's risk and dementia. So Alskong et al. Twenty eleven did a longitudinal study and they found that those who exercised more uh, aerobic capacity or they did exercise to the CDC guidelines so like five days a week 30 minutes per day of moderate intensity um, exercise actually had a reduced risk of dementia and uh, a slower rate of cognitive decline than those who did not exercise or did not meet those guidelines so that is super interesting to note that like If we exercise now in our lives, um, we can actually prevent cognitive decline, and we can kind of not prevent it, but slow it down. And we can reduce our risk for Alzheimer's disease, which is a really scary disease. So that's another way that exercise can protect our mental health, especially in our older age when we're not really thinking about that right now. But looking at these longitudinal effects on exercise and mental health, it's, it's important to take care of your body now because we know that. Our old age will come, and we want to protect our brains for as long as we can. Now, another mental illness that you might be familiar with is schizophrenia or psychosis. Now, people who live with schizophrenia will experience both hallucinations and delusions so you might see things hear things that aren't true or believe things that aren't true which are delusions they also will experience symptoms of depression so like they're not interested in doing stuff or they have low mood and there's also schizoaffective disorder which is those who have combined mood disorders such as bipolar disorder and schizophrenia psychosis hallucinations delusions all of that And schizophrenia can be a really scary illness to not only have, but also if you have a loved one who lives with this illness, it can be really challenging for the whole family. So, there have been a lot of different studies that have looked at individuals with schizophrenia and they found that exercise can actually help those with schizophrenia significantly and can help their mental health and relieve their symptoms. So for instance, Firth and colleagues in 2015 investigated the effects of physical activity on schizophrenia, uh, symptoms of schizophrenia. So they also include things, you know, like walking around a grocery store and not just like structured activity, but how physically active these individuals were who had schizophrenia and they found that those who had higher levels of physical activity overall had fewer symptoms of schizophrenia so their hallucinations and delusions were fewer they felt more interested in life they were more adherent to their medication and their overall cognitive functioning was increased and they felt more alert and creative which was super interesting Another mental illness that is super common in United States and other countries is addictive disorders, and the prevalence and in incidence of substance abuse disorders has significantly increased also since the COVID pandemic started which is obviously super detrimental to both individuals living with an addictive disorder and then families who also live with an individual with an addictive disorder. So providers are always looking ways to maintain recovery and prevent relapse into those addictive behaviors. And when looking at exercise, there have been a few really interesting studies on this topic. For instance, Lardier and colleagues in 2021, so really recently, looked at an exercise intervention on those who lived with an addictive disorder. And what they found is that the exercise intervention actually decreased the number of drinks that the people with substance abuse disorders had. So that means they were more abstinent from their substance that they were abusing, and that's pretty. That's a goal of recovery. And they also had better overall positive mood and felt more relaxed and less anxious, and anxiety can be a trigger for somebody to relapse into addictive behaviors. So that is another super beneficial aspect of exercise on common mental disorders that we see here in the U.S. And like I said, exercise can help those with PTSD, OCD, ADHD, other sorts of mental health disorders that weren't really touched in detail on the studies that I just covered. But those are just some benefits of exercise on some disorders. But like I said, there's so much research out there. So just Google Scholar, look at PubMed, PsychInfo, and you can find all of these because it's fascinating to see how our bodies were literally designed for movement and exercise can significantly help our mental health when our mental health is really struggling as a nation. Like, if we look at other countries, yes, they have their fair share of mental health disorders, but it's nothing compared to what the U.S. is going through. And I feel like because the U.S. is a much more sedentary population than other countries... I think that could be a contributing factor to some mental health crises. But obviously, when looking at a mental illness, it's biopsychosocial. It there are chemical imbalances in the brain. Also, there are social and psychological factors that contribute to mental illness, such as, you know, the way you look at the world or the people who you're surrounded with or history of trauma. And it all combines together to create or kind of elicit a mental illness. And I'm not saying that the lack of exercise is kind of the culprit for the health, mental health state of the U.S. right now, but I'm saying that maybe if the population in general increased their exercise routine a little bit, I think that we would see a weakened severity of symptoms of mental illnesses. I'm not saying it would mitigate them altogether at all, but I am saying that it might improve a little bit. Now I want to switch gears into the neuroscience of this all. And I love this stuff. It's so interesting. I'm going to look at a little bit of the neuroscience of why we have these positive effects of men- of exercise on mental health. And then I also am going to take a deep dive into running and how it acts- running specifically impacts our mental health. So first, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a neuroscience lesson here. So we have something in our body called the hypothalamic pituitary axis, or HPA axis for short. I know it's kind of a long word. Bear with me. I'll explain it all. So the HPA axis is basically governs our entire stress response. The HPA axis is part of the sympathetic nervous system. So this sympathetic nervous system, or SNS, is involved in fight or flight, so the stress response basically, and if you saw a bear in a woods and you ran away, that would be activating your sympathetic nervous system and your HPA axis. The parasympathetic nervous system is more involved in calming us down and relaxing us from that fight-or-flight response. And so what the HPA axis is composed of is the hypothalamus, which is a gland, an anterior pituitary gland, and the adrenal gland. Now, if you've ever heard adrenaline, which I'm sure you have, that's just kind of where adrenaline comes from, is our HPA axis. Now, when you're relaxed, your HPA axis will really not be active. But when you're stressed and anxious, your HPA axis is going to be super active. So think of like on the starting line of a race or of at a competition. Like your HPA axis is going to be in overdrive. And the HPA axis is responsible for kind of starting the downstream effect of cortisol, which is our stress hormone. And it really is not great for our bodies. And it has a lot of really bad physical health and mental health consequences, so we really don't want the HPA axis to be overstimulated. And when the HPA axis is stimulated, it stimulates another part of our brain called the amygdala. And that is our brain's region for the fight or flight response. So the amygdala is like what drives our emotions and it is the part of your brain. It's kind of in the middle of the brain that is what's activated when you're super stressed, super anxious, like I said, starting line of a race, running from a bear. Now one more brain structure to teach you before I get into how exercise affects this whole downstream effect of the HPA axis in the amygdala is the frontal cortex and prefrontal cortex. Now these two things work together and these cortices are responsible for slowing down the emotional response and triggering a Calm response and a reduction in anxiety. So if you think about the amygdala getting super super activated when you're stressed, the prefrontal cortex is like its brake So if your car was just accelerating and that's like your stress and it's going like ninety miles per hour on the freeway, um, the front that would be like your amygdala, the gas, and then the frontal cortex would be like its brake So the brake that you press down to slow it down and calm down and trigger more of a parasympathetic, uh, reaction and makes you calmer, decreases your cortisol levels, and it's so much better for your body and mind because stress is super bad for your health. And I can make an entire like video about how stress affects the body, but anyway I'll save that for a different time but that's just kind of the structure so HPA axis triggers the amygdala and it they all get heightened and elevated and then the frontal cortex is really what's needed to calm down emotions and think more clearly and be more creative. Now going into how exercise affects this whole axis here it's really interesting. So there was a study that uh was done by who was oh Sharma and colleagues in 2006 and what they found, and this is just one of several studies that have looked at this whole axis in response to exercise, they found that aerobic exercise actually increases blood circulation to your frontal cortex, so the thing that breaks those heightened emotions, um, and it changes your HPA axis and stress metabolism. So your amygdala, which is the emotion center that I just talked about, it actually gets more of a decreased blood flow or the blood flow is like metabolized in a different way and it's more directed towards your frontal cortex which is involved in processing those emotions in a healthy way. So that being said, kind of taking it from the neuroscience point of view, is that exercise actually does trigger a more clear thinking and more healthy processing of emotions because our heightened emotions and our heightened anxiety has a break it has something to process it through it doesn't just go into overdrive so you get super anxious so that is one reason why this exercise effect can actually impact mental health so much like if you think about it if you consistently do aerobic exercise and most of these studies do look at general recommendations you know like five days a week 30 minutes a day anywhere from moderate walking to jogging cycling swimming and stuff um if you're a chronic exerciser, let's just say, so you do exercise consistently, meet the CDC guidelines, then you're always going to be stimulating that part of your brain that helps you manage and control your emotions so that you can process anxiety and depression and it can help with mental illness and help you make more rational decisions. So if you're feeling super stressed and you just go out for a run, like I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but Sometimes if I'm like super duper stressed, I will go out and just run as hard as I can. And I mean, I don't do that all the time. It's very rare that I'll just like run super hard for like a mile, Um, but it helps sometimes. And what it really does, it takes that blood flow out of that emotion overdrive center in your brain so you can actually process things better. And when you're processing emotions better, obviously you have better overall mental health, especially when you are directing more blood flow to the rational part of your brain more if you exercise more often. So that's super interesting, kind of looking at the neuroscience behind why this might happen and why exercise might have such a big impact on our mental health. And also, in addition to these changes in like your blood flow of your brain structures that happens from exercise, we also want to look at something called neurotransmitters and how exercise affects neurotransmitters. Now, you've probably heard of hormones and neurotransmitters, and today I'm just going to focus on neurotransmitters because exercise has an entire different effect on overall hormone health too. So anyway, what a neurotransmitter is, it's basically a chemical messenger that your brain uses to communicate with your body. It goes between your brain cells, which are called neurons, So um, some common neurotransmitters that you might know of are serotonin, dopamine, endorphins. And basically when a neurotransmitter gets released, it goes from one cell to the other cell and they have many different effects on your body. There are good neurotransmitters and bad neurotransmitters and... An excess of any sort of neurotransmitter is not great, but also, if you don't have enough of a neurotransmitter, it can affect your overall mental and physical health, too. So, for instance, serotonin, we know, is responsible for our mood, and if you ever see those memes, it's like, oh yeah, the serotonin in my brain when I see a puppy or whatever, they're just talking about, like, serotonin, the neurotransmitter, and the more serotonin you have, the more happy you'll feel in general. So if we look at like antidepressant medications or anti-anxiety medications, it's going to be increasing the serotonin available in your brain. So there's more of that communication neurotransmitter and you have an elevated mood. So when looking at exercise's effects on serotonin, it is super fascinating. There are so many different studies that show that Um, serotonin is enhanced when you exercise and specifically it was Day and colleagues in 1992 found that after exercise just for 30 minutes four times a week so there was like a trial and it was like a few months and those people who exercised for yeah 30 minutes four times a week actually serotonin metabolism was increased and it was more efficient so what that means is that the individuals who exercise their neurons were better able to absorb the serotonin that was in their bloodstream. They didn't necessarily need more serotonin, like some studies do show that exercise does enhance our levels of serotonin, but it actually shows that your neurons not only have more serotonin, but it also absorbs the serotonin better, and it increases that rate at which our brain can process that happy hormone, which is great because we all want more serotonin. Like we all want not only that, but we want to be able to metabolize it better because the more serotonin we have, the more efficient our brain is at metabolizing the serotonin, the more happy and elevated our mood is going to be, the more positive we'll be, the more like just in general, our outlook on life will tends to be a little bit better. Um, But yeah, it's super fascinating. Like They only looked at, like, aerobic exercise. So, you know, it was cycling, swimming, walking, or jogging. But um, there's more research that needs to be done on, like, anaerobic conditioning. So on serotonin, so, like, lifting weights. But no doubt that it has very similar effects. But it's very interesting to see how, like, our brain literally uses our happy hormones more efficiently when we are exercising. Now another neurotransmitter you may be familiar with is dopamine and dopamine is usually it It's responsible for so many different things, but usually it's our center for reward. So when you take your first sip of a Starbucks coffee, like when your barista hands you that coffee, you get a huge dopamine rush in your brain. Like your brain is just like, oh my gosh, producing all this dopamine. It makes you feel just satisfaction and pleasure. Or when you win an event or you master that really good mile split or whatever, you have a negative split run something that makes you feel satisfied and accomplished. A lot of people who have addictive disorders tend to have kind of altered dopamine pathways so that they get a little they get a pleasure rush out of a substance or vice versa. There are ways that the dopamine pathways can be altered and can be bad for your brain, but in general our brain is always seeking more ways to healthfully increase dopamine levels because healthfully increasing these levels can lead to overall satisfaction and it can promote better mood in the long run. And as I mentioned, there are very unhealthy ways to increase dopamine levels like through substance use and abuse or doing other self-damaging behaviors. However, there have been many different research studies that have shown that after exercising your dopamine levels are actually elevated for like two and a half hours longer afterwards which is super awesome and those people who exercise on a consistent basis so four to five days a week 30 minutes a day aerobic activity they tend to have higher dopamine levels in a healthy way than those who don't exercise and of course there's things like such thing as too much dopamine but that it doesn't even cross cross the threshold of, like, too much dopamine in your brain. It's more just looking at, like, in general, people have more better mood because they have more dopamine. And exercising does hit those dopamine receptors, and it makes you feel good and better. So that's another neurotransmitter that is affected by exercise and can really help elevate your mood. And then another neurotransmitter, which I'm sure you have all heard of again, is an endorphin. And it basically is... It literally means endogenous opioid. So basically, if you think of opioids, the medication, they're a pain blocker. And they are highly, highly regulated by the CDC and the FDA just because they can be addictive. But the brain actually produces its own endogenous opioids. So what that means is when you're exercising, your brain actually produces these endorphins. And what the endorphins do is they block pain receptors. So you don't feel as much pain when you're exercising. So this occurs usually about after 10 to 15 minutes of moderate-intensity exercise and you don't feel as much pain and this is a these endorphins are especially produced like during competition so if you ever like start at a race and you go out way too fast because you like oh my gosh this feels so easy that's because a lot of endorphins are being produced in your brain but exercise does enhance these endorphins so you feel less pain and that is kind of what has been suspected to create the runner's high for a while but in a few minutes i kind of get into actually how recent research has shown that it's not endorphins that create the runner's high but i'll talk about that in a second but yeah that's another neurotransmitter that is increased by exercise and then finally, looking at a couple different brain structure changes due to exercise in the neuroscience realm, there is something called neuroplasticity. And our brain is composed of billions and billions of cells called neurons. And these neurons form pathways to process things and to learn new things. And having a high level of neuroplasticity means that your brain is able to adapt to changes, change its neural networks and structures so that you can better learn and adapt to your environment. So having good levels of neuroplasticity. It means you're able to learn better, be more creative, process things better, memorize things better. It really is essential for cognitive functioning. And of course, looking at all sorts of studies, exercise enhances neuroplasticity to such a great extent that can actually boost your IQ score and it does protect against dementia and Alzheimer's like I mentioned earlier. But it's because your brain is very flexible and can adapt easily. I mean, if you think about it, when you are exercising like you're putting your body through so much at one time like if you're riding a bike you're not only cycling you're having to monitor your breathing and check your surroundings it's like your brain is constantly adapting and so if you're c- consistently exercising like your brain is going to be able to better adapt to any situation which is just awesome and fascinating and so good and healthful for your brain And then a final neuroscience reason for this relationship between exercise and mental health that I want to address is through brain waves. So we have all sorts of different brain waves and they're always being fired at different times, but basically there's like alpha waves, beta waves, delta waves, and there's certain times of day and night when those get released. So if you think of like all the different stages of sleep, like our delta waves are released in really deep sleep and... And then our alpha waves, which are usually released in the day or kind of before bedtime, are associated with relaxation and not like into anxiety. So if you have higher levels of alpha waves, you feel more relaxed. Cortisol levels are lower. You just feel generally more happy, content, and relaxed. And beta waves are associated with like alertness and awakeness. So that's like usually like day to day like you're going like you're processing stuff um, and your beta waves will be active it basically just means an active brain so really the goal of like things like meditation and stuff are to increase our alpha waves and alpha waves like I said super good for you they relieve stress they make you feel better in general um, and so what was super interesting is that, Kraby and colleagues in 2014 did an EEG study of those who exercised just for like 30 minutes on a bike. A lot of these studies are done on a bike because it's pretty controlled. You can have like the same speed, you know, like even with like running, like strides can be different. But 30 minutes on a bike actually increased your alpha wave activity, not only alpha waves, but like other waves too. But The most significant effects were found in alpha waves, those waves associated with relaxation, for 30 minutes after your exercise bout. So if you ever go for a really tough run or you have a really hard workout and you're like, oh my gosh, this sucks right now in the moment, but then afterwards you get out and you're like, wow, I love the feeling after. Like you hear a lot of runners say like, I run because I love the feeling after I exercise those, that's because those alpha waves are really high. And it's the same level of alpha waves as you would get if you were meditating. So that's another really interesting thing is that like our brain not only changes its blood flow to its structures, but it also changes its neuroplasticity. Well, it does change its neuroplasticity. It changes its neurotransmitter metabolism. So you feel more happy through that. And it changes its brain waves. Like the brain waves associated with anxiety are literally reduced, and the brain waves associated with relaxation are enhanced after exercise. Like the brain on exercise has all these physiologic changes that do manifest in those really great benefits to mental health. And so that's super, super cool. And now I finally want to wrap up with a little bit of a deep dive into running, your brain on running. I see so many Instagram posts about this, like it's called like your brain on running. But of course, I wanted to look at the literature at some evidence-based sources because I wanted to see what certain scholars said about this and look at the research because Instagram, although it's great, sometimes it's not always the most reliable platform. But there are some super interesting facts here. So as I mentioned before, A lot of people think that the runner's high is due to endorphins. And if you've ever experienced the runner's high, oh my goodness, it's the best. It's like, it is addictive. Like, once you hit the runner's high, you like cannot stop and like that's why people kind of catch the quote-unquote running bug is because like you hit that runner's high and it feels so good like you don't feel pain like you feel so in the moment you feel like you could run forever for days and days and days and a lot of people said oh well you can't feel pain so it must be endorphins but actually so much research has come out to show that it is actually due to endocannabinoids and endocannabinoids trigger or they attach to the same receptors that THC does. So it produces the same effects as cannabis, which is super interesting. Like I have never, ever, 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 ever done any substances or like cannabis or something, but I have gotten the runner's high before. So, I mean, is that what cannabis feels like? I will never know. But I do know that is what the runner's high feels like. So literally, when we are running and we're getting that feeling of euphoria, it is because we have internal cannabis mean made, basically. So not cannabis, but like, you know, cannabinoids. And it just creates that calming effect that cannabis does, apparently. And so, yeah, like I said, I will never know if it is the same because I will never ever do cannabis that is my personal preference but I will say that your brain actually does get high when it hits the runner's high and I can do an entire new episode about how to hit the runner's high but it really is like I don't know I guess like you really have to like start out pretty slow like start in that aerobic easy heart rate zone and then go for like 30 minutes and then you will just fly and it's crazy so yeah And then running specifically also increases a couple other neurotransmitters called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, and GABA, and these neurotransmitters are associated with relaxation and just an overall feeling of positivity and well-being, and they are associated with reductions in anxiety, so people who have higher levels of BDNF and GABA tend to be less anxious people. So running actually helps increase these, makes you a little bit less anxious, which is... Really cool. And another reason why running can affect levels of anxiety and help you cope with anxiety or if you live with generalized anxiety disorder. So I touched on a little bit of the neuroscience of how running specifically helps you helps your brain functioning, but I also want to look at a little bit of the psychological ways here. So Dr. Rady from Harvard Medical School says that running uses more brain cells than any other human behavior. So more than any other endurance activity. I mean, you would think that swimming would do the same thing, but he argued that, you know, when you're running, you have to take in your surroundings, do step-by-step, do your arm motions. Like if you're listening to music, you know, having self-talk, there's so many different psychological stimuli that uh, enhance your brain. So more brain cells are being used. And of course, running also more stimulates your frontal cortex and kind of decreases that emotional response. But also running gives you a sense of mindfulness. Like when you are on a run, you are pretty much only in that moment, in the present. You have to think and know one foot in front of the other. You have to constantly be using those brain cells and taking in the environment around you and really stimulating your mind. Because if you wander off and you get really distracted on a run, like you could get lost, like you could get injured, you could get hurt. So it's just, it's fascinating. Like you kind of are forced into a mindfulness state. And that's why if you notice a lot of people who are very type A overachievers tend to like running, it's because people who tend to be overachievers in type A have anxious minds. They have minds that have a hard time turning off. I'm one of those people. Like I am, I always feel like I need to be doing work. I am very, you know, type A goal-oriented. Um, and I love running because it forces me to be mindful and it forces me to take my brain, like, my brain just gets a rest. Like, of course, your body's working, but, like, other parts of my brain are being stimulated that, like, I would never do that. Like, that would never be stimulated when I was, like, doing homework. And, of course, as we know, mindfulness is really, really good for mental health, and a lot of interventions for psychological disorders involve mindfulness, like going for mindful walks, doing a mindful activity, whatever it might be. But running does help with that feeling of mindfulness, which is... Really great and is another way that running can help our mental health and then also running it gives you a sense of control and this is still going off of the Harvard Medical School uh, research and also I looked at some other studies to like see what other literature supported this but running enhances one's perception of control and people who tend to run more have higher perceptions of control and feel better mentally and so Every single human being craves control. It is something that we... It's an innate desire that we have. We all want a controllable, predictable world. Also, I'm sorry if you hear my dog in the background. She's snoring um, behind me. So, yeah. Anyway, um, every human being craves a controllable predictable world it is literally in our basic human psychological needs and when your sense of control is threatened you can engage in maladaptive behaviors to try and cope with that control like substance abuse eating disorders self-harm to name a few and it can be really destructive if you use other forms of behaviors that may not be good for you to help you feel more in control and there are so many things that you can control that are not healthy but running is a healthy way of engaging in a sense of control to an extent and I'll talk about that in a little bit but when you run you can for the most part control your pace you can control how far you go you can control your footsteps there are so many things that you can control and count and go after rather than maladaptive forms so it's funny because I have the run fast cook fast eat slow cookbook by Shalane Flanagan and Elise Kopiki and I love it and it's great and one of the quotes in there was count splits not calories and so with having struggled with an eating disorder in the past like that was my old sense of control was calories and that obviously was a very maladaptive form of control so now counting splits yes that just shows how great of control running can give you like If you're really feeling a threatened sense of control in your life and you have running as an outlet and you want to engage in that and that is a form of activity that you feel like could give you a sense of control, it won't be everybody's, but it might be, then use that. Count your splits. Try and control your next pace. It's healthier than using maladaptive forms of coping. And so that's why so many people who have previously struggled with eating disorders or addictive disorders actually find running. And if you notice, there's a lot of runners who have had eating disorders in the past. And it's not just because of the, you know, stupid, thinner equals faster mentality, which is so wrong and so dumb. But, like, it's because people in the past have engaged in maladaptive Behaviors of control that triggered that same dopamine response that we were talking about earlier. But now they were able to find a healthy outlet for that. And that's what happened to me. And running has truly been such a great outlet for my mental health because not only does it give me a sense of control, and I also have other things that I can control too, you know, and realize that for me, God is also in control in my life. And if anything happens to me, like I get injured or something and can't run, that's okay. Like, God is in control of my life, and that's what I realized, but it also does fulfill that need kind of for control in my brain. It gives me satisfaction. It helps me be mindful. It enhances those neurotransmitters, makes me feel good after I'm done, and when you are always working towards a goal, you know, it does trigger more dopamine rushes in your brain. It makes you feel good and accomplished and it helps you set goals outside of what your life or career may be. So if school's stressful, going for a run and working towards maybe a 5k time or working towards running a whole mile without walking, those are goals that you can set outside of other forms of other parts of your life that, you know, could lead to burnout, and so if I'm constantly working, 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 or studying, 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 and I'm not having a sense of goals outside of my grades or my career, like it's so easy to burn out. And so running is truly self care, you know. It helps me set goals. It helps me be mindful. And I know a lot of you can relate to this, um, and a lot of runners feel the same way. But that's just kind of how running is on the brain, and Another study that was really cool, I don't remember the name, but I did, I saw it linked on one of the articles that I read. I'll have to find it, but um, it found that, after a run, your creativity is actually boosted for up to two hours after you're done running. And this is because so much blood flow does go to the prefrontal cortex. So again, creativity helps you be more creative. I'm a morning runner. I run in the morning and I feel so productive, so creative in the morning. Afterwards, I just feel great and I truly do feel more personable in the mornings um, after I run. So it really does wonders for the brain. And exercise in general, as you guys can see, it helps not only boost mood and reduce the risk of a bunch of different common psychological disorders, but it changes your brain chemistry and it makes you feel better and it can make you feel accomplished. So those are some positive effects of exercise on the brain. Now I do want to switch gears a little bit to talk about when exercise is not good for your mental health and it can truly do that. So If you have ever been an athlete or ever struggled with this, you know the dangers of overtraining or exercise addiction. Now, a lot of individuals who have dealt with eating disorders in particular have struggled with exercise addiction in the past. And you want to make sure that if you have had a eating disorder in the past or you've struggled with overtraining or exercise addiction, you always assess your relationship with exercise every single day. And here I'm just going to list off some symptoms of overtraining. And overtraining is really bad for the mental health. So overtraining, it increases your cortisol levels. So that's not what we want. Of course, exercise in the short term, it does help with your cortisol management. But overtraining, this is overdoing it, not giving yourself rest. It will increase your stress levels, which is super bad for you. It actually makes you more fatigued. It makes you more irritable and just not the most approachable person. It decreases your mood. You have a loss of interest in doing things. You have poor sleep. It decreases your motivation. Your performance actually declines or plateaus. So if you notice yourself working really, really, really hard, but you're not getting fitter, you're not getting better, you're just kind of at a stuck point, you might be overtraining your muscles are tired, you get injured, you get sick a lot. If you're getting sick all the time, you might be overtraining it, because it weakens your immune system physiologically. And so those are some symptoms of overtraining to make sure you watch out for because overtraining is super bad for the body. And yes, exercise is good, but you don't want to be pushing yourself too much. And overtraining can easily lead to burnout and burnout is not great at all. So as I was talking about burnout in school or in your career, burnout can happen in your sport and with exercise. If the only thing you care about in life is exercise, you are going to burn out. Absolutely. If your life revolves around exercise, you are going to burn out, and exercise won't have those positive effects on your mental health anymore. So a lot of times, what can lead to overtraining is an exercise addiction. And it actually is a thing. And it's not in the DSM five or anything, so it's not like a mental disorder, but it is part of uh the diagno the DSM five diagnosis for eating disorders. So usually uh excessive exercise, it's in the like diagnostic part of it, but an exercise addiction is not a real like diagnosis. But it is a real thing and something that can really take over somebody's life. So going through what an exercise addiction could look like, it's really if your life revolves around it. If somebody invites you out and the first thing you think about is, when will I get my workout in? That could be a sign of an exercise addiction. If you don't allow yourself to take rest days, rest days are so important in order for us to really reap the benefits of our exercise. And so if you struggle with your taking rest days and you feel anxiety about rest days that could be a sign of an exercise dependence or addiction and you really want to monitor that behavior because rest is important and of course we all love to move but You definitely are gonna need rest in there. And that is really how you don't burn out and how your body adapts to the exercise. Another sign of exercise addiction or dependence would be having to do the same workouts or more every week. So if you notice yourself, let's say you're just recreational running, you're not training for anything, and you run three days a week and you run for 40 minutes a time. So three days a week, 40 minutes of running, and that's your workout routine. If you notice yourself getting anxiety, if you don't get to meet that workout routine, or if you notice that you always want to go more, so let's say you have 40 minutes planned, but you're saying, I can go 45 minutes the next week. I can go 50 minutes. I can go 55. I can increase my days. I can increase my mileage. I can keep going and going and going. That can get to a really unhealthy point. If you are training for something and you don't feel that your life revolves around your training schedule, and you don't feel anxiety if you miss a workout or something, or you have to get something short, that's okay. But if you notice yourself saying, okay, I'm going to go more and more and more so that I can feel satisfied, and I can keep going and going and going, then that could get into a sign of exercise addiction and dependence especially if you feel anxiety if you don't go as far as you did the week before or you don't go as hard or you don't meet your exercise routine that is definitely a sign of an exercise dependence or let's say you get sick or aren't feeling well and the first thing you think about is oh my gosh how am I gonna work out that could be a sign of exercise dependence as well so just really My advice is to check in with yourself and notice your behaviors around exercise and notice if it is getting unhealthy. But there are ways to cultivate a healthy relationship with exercise and your body. If you notice that you really are dependent on exercise and it is causing these symptoms of overtraining and you feel tired and you want a break almost, if you notice yourself thinking like, if I get injured it might be a relief, then it might be time to scale back on it a little bit. I would challenge the rules that you have around exercise. So if you say, oh, it doesn't count if I don't sweat or it doesn't count if I don't go further than I did last time, challenge that belief. Say, no, today I'm going to take a rest day. Take an extra rest day. Sometimes you need to cease exercise altogether for a very long time in order to find that healthy relationship with exercise again and be an athlete again. And that is what I had to do. I took like Two and a half years off of exercise totally. And I mean, everybody's journey is different. Some people need two years. Some people need a week. Some people need a month. It's really dependent on your own journey. But really resetting and listening to your body and learning how to trust it again and realize that like if you don't exercise all the time, it's okay. Like your body is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And the fact that it's alive and breathing is incredible and you don't need to earn your worth through exercise or through how you perform and also you don't need to earn your food through your exercise or how you perform. Your body deserves food all the time. Be unapologetically fueled, my friends, but really just take a step back. Maybe decrease your exercise. Increase more rest days. If you notice you still can't break those patterns, go and just take a few weeks off. Just try and find other things outside of exercise that you love. Establish your relationship in Christ and realize that like your life is so much more than how your body performs. At the end of the day, exercise is always going to be there for you to give you those positive benefits. But it can only be there for you if you give your body the rest and replenishment that it needs. It can't be going all the time. And in order to really have that healthy relationship around exercise, you need to realize that your body is a temple. Literally, in Corinthians, it says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. And exercise is great for it. It really is. And it has many benefits, you know, on your physical and mental health, like we were talking about, like, this whole time, basically. But also, too much exercise is bad at the same time. So you want to have that balance. And you want to treat your body like a temple because it will be positively affected by your exercise routine if you give it the proper rest and refuel. So just check in with yourself. Look at your relationship with exercise. If something comes up and you can't make your workout, how do you feel? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel okay? Do you still eat the same way? Those are some behaviors to just kind of check in about and recognize. So that's a way to really cultivate a healthy relationship with exercise so you can fully appreciate all of the beautiful benefits it has to your mental health and achieve your dreams and become the best version of you and the best athlete that you can be. So we covered quite a lot today. We talked about how Exercise can enhance your mental health so much and it can help manage some common mental disorders and some of the neuroscience behind why that happens and then specifically running and how good it is for your brain and cognition and just everything and how exercise can really be a fruitful part of your life that gives you a sense of social support and control and can give you so many benefits if incorporated into your life and it's a really great thing. And we also talked about what happens if you overtrain or have an exercise addiction or dependence and how that can actually hinder your mental health so in general exercise is great and there are so many ways that your brain and body thank you for getting out there for a run a cycle a walk a jog whatever you're doing or a dance party <laughs> however you decide to move your body is great um and also to be mindful and make sure that you have that healthy relationship with exercise and give your body rest and refuel when you do engage in exercise because that's what your body needs and we love our bodies. So anyway, thank you so much for listening today. It was really so much fun to do some background research on this episode and talk about this, especially like I said, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so make sure you guys are taking care of your mental health, and of course, reach out for help if you find yourself struggling with mental health, or you notice maybe you have some signs of exercise dependence, or if you don't exercise at all, try incorporating some exercise into your life and see how it affects your mental health, but again, don't be afraid to reach out for help, because your mental health is just as important as your. Thanks again for listening, and I'm super excited to talk to you guys in another episode.